Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through gifts by people like you. Please consider making a donation through the donate button on the website to help us offer unique audio, video, and text-based teachings on the internet and to grow this community library. Michael's teaching bridges the gap between inner healing and social change by synthesizing traditional spiritual teachings with the insights of the West. To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. standing up here speaking and then you hear some godlike voice that sounds a little bit like yourself. <laughs> Michael just said to me, how does this go? And I said, well, we'll walk in and the room will fall ominously silent. <laughs> so thank you for that. <laughs> uh, here's what we had in mind. A big part of our agenda is to hear your questions. You know, and, and both of us are going to tell you about our background in practice, in particular our relationship to yoga and our relationship and training in Buddhism. You know? And we both have some overlap. In, in the hope uh, it's, it's been my observation in the West that these two fields, there, are many, there seem to be a growing number of people who practice in them both. You know? And then they see them as complementary, not only compatible, but complementary, as Michael and I did. And so we'll tell you a little bit about how that has been for us and is for us, and then what we'd like is to hear from you any questions you have, maybe from your own personal relationship to the two of them, or in general from your own personal relationship to practice. Okay? And for those of you who don't know, I, I'd like to say a little bit about Michael. Michael is uh, a teacher in, in yoga and in meditation, and has trained uh, not only extensively in yoga with uh, Patavi Joyce in the Astanga tradition, but in other traditions too. And then in the Buddhist world, he has trained in Vipassana extensively, and is, has qualified as a teacher in that, and has trained in Zen. And, and so I think it's uh, wonderful that, that we have uh, someone of that resource, that resource of experience and, and personal commitment and personal involvement to share with us how that is. And maybe I'll start by, since I'm already... Okay. Is the mic on? Do you want to just lift it up? Maybe it's quite far up. 
outside. No? The same? No. Yeah. Yeah. If I talk down like this. <laughs> someone just told me a Swedish joke. The Swedish joke is this. How do you know someone likes you? They look down at your shoes and smile. <laughs> um, okay, I'm not going to repeat everything I said, but I've talked louder. And I'll give you a very brief description of my uh, adventures in the world of practice. I stumbled into Japan. I uh, got very interested in Zen. I read many books prescribed by someone who was trained to be a Soto Zen priest. But then I went to Thailand and I became a Theravada monk. And, uh, steeped in that tradition for several years. Although in the back of my mind, that Zen was my primary reference, my primary agenda. And eventually, I asked the monk who lived in the hut next to me in Bangkok, where could I go in the West to practice Zen? And he said, San Francisco Zen Center, 300 page strip. <laughs> <laughs> and 40 odd years ago, that's what I did. And then, since I've come here, um, for reasons I'm not quite sure of, I've also ventured out at times to study in the Rinzai tradition. I've studied with three different Rinzai teachers. And, and from very early, in my Buddhist practice, I realized I needed to, to... Meditation was a core part of the traditions I was interested in. And to do that, it would be very helpful to be able to sit cross-legged. And to do that, it would be helpful to practice Hatha Yoga. So, throughout that time, I've also begun and continued a yoga practice. Uh, so that has not anywhere close to the depth of practice and the depth of study that Michael has. But I think more, like maybe many others, that it was in the service of developing flexibility, uprightness, muscle tone, working with the breath. And, um, and then incorporating that back in. In general, I find what I was taught in the Soto tradition to be mysterious about some fundamentals about body and breath, and what I was taught in the Rinzai tradition was exacting and particular. Um, and what I was taught in the Vipassana tradition, the Theravadan tradition, was this wonderful array of engagement in the body, engagement in the breath, engagement of states of mind, uh, <coughs> a psychology. And I have found the three of them together to be a very rich mix. Okay. And that's my piece. Thank you. Is it okay if I sit? And the volume's okay? Um, 
I just want Paul to keep going. <laughs> I, f I feel like we're at camp and it's time for you know bedtime and we're being told stories. <laughs> um, so uh, when I was a kid, um, the person who was my closest companion was an uncle of mine. Um, and he was diagnosed when he was a teenager with schizophrenia. And so he was mostly institutionalized. Uh, not because of symptoms of schizophrenia, but just because he was really drugged. Uh, this was an era when um, people who were diagnosed with schizophrenia, there was sort of one route, which was uh, pharmaceuticals. And um, uh, I used to go visit him in the hospital uh, about three times a week, starting when I was eight years old. And um, the first thing we'd do was we would sit together uh, quietly in... Uh, the smoking room, and you weren't allowed incense, but you could smoke. <laughs> and he would uh, take his cigarette, and he would put it in an ashtray, and he would put it on top of the speaker, and then we would sit down on the floor in front of the speaker, and he would put on the Beatles' White Album. <laughs> and then he, we would watch the cigarette smoke lift up, and then as the music started, it would start making shapes. And he would, he would call this meditating on the shape of sound. And, uh, and we would watch the shapes as we would listen to the music. And I remember having these experiences where I could see my mind. Like, I don't know if you remember your first experience of like seeing that your thoughts are not actually who you are. And, uh, and although this sounds kind of idealistic in, in retrospect, at the time it made me feel very isolated and kind of lonely um, because uh, I couldn't talk to anybody about any of these things. So the hospital was actually the most sane place in my life and the kind of conservative Jewish community that I was growing up in seemed crazy. Um, and uh, anyways, uh, after we would meditate, uh, we would read, he had two books, uh, the Bhagavad Gita uh, and the Dhammapada. Uh, I was telling the group uh, a couple days ago that he actually only had half of the Dhammapada, it ripped, it would ripped at some point, so we only would look at half of it, the good half, I guess. Um, and uh, and so, so those teachings stayed with me, but I never knew that like meditation was a practice that you do or that yoga was something you actually do. I thought it was kind of like a set of ideas. Um, but uh, when I was uh, finishing high school, I struggled a lot with depression, which runs in my family. And uh, I had a hard time in university um, managing my moods. And my girlfriend said, uh, we should practice yoga. And, uh, and so we went to a class, and as the teacher was teaching, I, I, I mean, I couldn't do the movements, but I felt like I knew the next thing that was going to come out of his mouth. It was like I'd found home. And the same week, I went to a Zen temple in Detroit, and the teacher said, uh, sit facing the wall. You ever heard this instruction? Follow your breathing. Um, and so I realized at that time that uh, I would probably not be able to go forward in my life 
unless I really learned how to work with my mind. Um, uh, given the experience that I saw with my uncle, who died just a few years earlier than uh, before I graduated high school, he died because uh, a lot of the, the chemicals he was taking, particularly lithium, um, really wore out his kidneys. Um, so he died at 50, quite young. And, um, and I just kind of felt really disoriented. So um, I started practicing uh, yoga and meditation at the same time, first in Zen. But then I found that the language that was being taught in the Vipassana world, especially in the insight meditation world, I found the psychological language was very, very accessible. And I liked the way they mapped out meditation techniques, which I didn't get at first in Zen teaching. So I sort of wound up that way. And then um, um, I also eventually ended up going back to school to study uh, psychology and eventually psychoanalysis. So kind of my interest, I always think of it as, as being a synthesizer, you know. I, it's just the way I've ended up. It seems to be part of the culture that I'm in, is um, seeing these different traditions and how they work together. Um, but, the, but the last thing I'll say, like outside of the kind of like year-by-year -year biography, is just that um, uh, because we're teaching this workshop and we're focusing so much on breathing, I, I feel like it's also amazing how these different traditions have mapped out ways of meeting the breath, working with the breath, refining the breath, and how decades later it's still so fascinating and helpful. Uh, which I, it, it seems like Paul has, has agreed mm -hmm. on this point. And uh, so that, that's where I'll leave my biography, which is I, I feel like just as motivated in practice as I was when I, when I first started. So, yeah. so we've said our party piece, and now <laughs> you're invited, and hopefully we'll accept the invitation to um, ask the questions that seem relevant to you about your practice, or practice in general, or about the synthesizing of traditions, or anything related to that. Yes. I'll ask a question because it's at ground zero. Just say, let's see if we get, do we have a, a portable mic in Tokyo? Or, I uh, no. Maybe if you just stand, stand up. I'll stand yeah. and speak to us. Great, okay. So, I'm, I'm Hank uh, from Houston, Texas. And, uh, trying to learn about meditation and uh, uh, had some instruction in yoga years ago when I liked the notion that you're complimentary. But so for somebody who just assume I know nothing about meditation and I'm trying to get started and uh, I'm almost 74 years old so the mortality table says I've got 10 more years to go. So I don't have time to learn all the traditions. So what would you recommend to somebody who's interested in uh, finding spirituality uh, uh, in some way through meditation, and who's starting at ground zero with, uh, with no experience whatsoever? Mm. 
I can go if you want me. Please do. <laughs> um, there, there's a, a wonderful a story where somebody comes to the Buddha who's elderly and says, I want to learn about meditation and I don't have much time. Please teach me. And the Buddha says, I'm on my alms rounds right now. This isn't a good time. Come back another time. And so he comes back. And he says, okay, now could you teach me? And the Buddha says, now's not a good time. And he says, you or I could die at any moment. Please teach me the Dharma. And then the Buddha says, well, since you've asked three times, uh, I'll teach you. And the Buddha says, uh, in the scene, there is only what you see. In what you hear, there is just what you hear. He goes through all the sense organs. In what you feel, there is just what you feel. And in what you think, there are just thoughts. And if you look at that closely, he says, you'll see that there's no you in there. And that's the teaching he gives. So maybe one student wouldn't get that teaching if they just showed up and said, hey, I'm kind of interested in meditation. But this person really felt like they didn't have much time. They wanted the deepest teaching. Um, now, the story is that student got enlightened on the spot. So I don't know if that's just happened for you. Maybe I just like, I don't have, the, I don't, I don't have that many years of time. Did that do it for you? But, but what I will say is that um, you can sit, follow your breathing, have the senses open all the time. All the time. So not just like, I need to get on my cushion once a day or twice a day, but how all day you can be connected with your breathing and notice how in the scene, in what you see, there's just what you see. And when you add a lot of drama to that, just come back to seeing. In what you hear, there's just what you hear. And not adding anything to that. And just to treat that as a continuous meditative practice, rather than idealizing, like, I only have so many years, and that means I can only do so many retreats. Um, all day long we're practicing. And here's what I would say, Heidi. I encourage you to do some yoga. And all sorts of studies show it doesn't matter what age you are, when you start, it's really helpful and the body responds. Um, having a comfortable seated position you know, is foundational in the Vipassana tradition and the Zen tradition and, and traditions that emphasize open awareness. They all have their own way of cultivating that and most of them include seated. The, the Zen tradition tends to be more um, particular, more defined in its structure. Some people love that, and some people hate it. The Vipassana tradition tends to be more open, um, more secular than religious, and less defined. And some people love that, in contrast to the Zen tradition. So check them out and see 
See where your love goes. Do you want to stand up so everybody yeah. can hear? Um, my name is Matt. Um, I'm wondering if you guys had experience with dream work and meditation, mixing the two as if they're separate together. Okay. And um, I guess specifically with Tibetan Buddhism and their uh, dream yoga, if either of you have gone down that avenue and found some interesting ideas. I haven't. If you haven't, I shouldn't speak to it, because then we both won't have a chance to, to talk about it. Okay. So can we save that question for um, mealtime sometime? Absolutely. Okay, okay. great. Uh, I have spent my whole life saying I'm not a yoga person, <laughs> um, and, I, and I haven't. Me too. Funny enough, <laughs> <laughs> I haven't felt um, the pressure upon myself to sit in full lotus either. And that's usually why people are, you know, saying, you know, well, I, I'm a Zen student and I wanted to sit in full lotus. Yeah. Could you talk a little about um, mind and body yoga as a meditation practice and uh, a little bit more? Um, yeah. Um, I think of yoga as a psychological practice and meditation as a physical practice. So when I, when I teach meditation, I try to focus my instruction on the physical and anatomical details of practice so that the awareness is really grounded in the body so that the body and awareness become one thing. So when, um, when people are in sitting meditation, I spend a lot of time talking about the palate, the mouth, the pelvis, the tongue. Like, can, I can give you an example. So um, when your mind is busy, it shows up as tension in your tongue. You can even notice this right now. Like when there's clinging in the mind, immediately there is tension in the tongue. So if there's a lot of clinging in the mind, you can just release your tongue. And then it's like, can you feel that? Yeah, so I always say to people, when you first learn both yoga and meditation, the first thing you should learn how to do is leave your tongue alone for five years. Imagine how easy high school would have been. So leaving your tongue alone means just like letting the tongue be and noticing how whenever the mind is busy, the tongue is like an embassy of the mind. And whenever the mind is busy, the tongue is busy. And just learning how to release that. And start, so starting to see these very intimate connections between what the mind is doing and how that shows up in the body. Another example could be um, when you're learning how to do zazen and you're learning how to just let the breath flow, sometimes there are a lot of habits in the vocabulary of the body, in the vocabulary of memory, so that it's hard to just let the breath go. Let the breath, maybe there's trauma or unprocessed grief that is kind of preventing you from just letting your body breathe. 
So you can see that our emotions and our physical holding patterns and our psychology are also bound up together. So that's why it's really important to have a physical practice in addition to the sitting meditation practice because you start to wake up the intelligence of the body and find new patterns of vocabulary in the body um, that's part of our process of awakening. So, so, so I think the, these complementary practices uh, really need one another in order to create a holistic, a holistic path. Yeah. And I would add to that, Catherine, um, I think it's not coincidental that, that these uh, meditative techniques grew up in cultures where people sat on the ground and were used to sitting cross-legged and, and, and that was um, a common feature of the people who would turn up to do the meditation. And it's not a common feature for us who learn to grow up sitting in chairs that use the body in a different way and it just is a sort of a common sense aspect of it to my mind to think, well, if we're going to practice in this tradition, it would be helpful for us to have our bodies able to accommodate the fundamental postures of it. And then, as Michael was saying, you know, as we're able to adopt that posture, we discover a significant part of the teachings, which is the wisdom of breath, the wisdom of body, and how they can hold the mental processes, the emotional processes, in, in a way where they start to be illuminated. Not to say you can't do that sitting in a chair, but even sitting in a chair, sitting upright, rather than like this, uh, is a yogic challenge, is a physical challenge too. It, it requires flexibility of the spine, muscle tone, you know, and, and release in different parts of the body. So this is the way in which I feel like it's, there's just a common sense to it for those who choose to pursue uh, these Asian traditions. What special um, ideas would you have for people who are quadriplegic and who want to meditate? Um, yeah, it's a great question. Thanks. Um, of course, talking like this, it can seem like there's some idealized physical uh, ability and breath ability and even mental ability that needs to be accomplished to enable the process of awareness. Um, anyone who has a body, who has breath, who has a mind, has the, the available conscious experience that can illustrate the nature of reality, that can illustrate the nature of the human experience. Um, and, and, and 
with that kind of affirmation, then to discover within their condition how what's the skillful approach. No? I haven't actually worked with anyone who was quadriplegic. I don't know, have you, Michael? Mm -hmm. yeah. so. And you know, we can extend it. You know, we, we can say that every single one of us has our own physical, breath, mental, psychological challenges. You know? We all have that, you know. And, and really what we're doing is we're trying to create a capacity of attention and awareness that can illustrate it for us and let it become a teaching rather than a simple affliction that leaves us confused and distressed. I think the only thing I might add to that is just, it's really hard to do it by yourself. And so I would probably encourage somebody with whatever condition they have, if they felt like if it was a condition that set them apart in some way and they wanted to do a practice that I would encourage them to find someone else to do it with also. Whether that person had the same condition or not. Um, find someone else to practice with. That's the only other piece that I would add. Yeah. Will you stand up just so everybody can hear you? Or speak really loud. I think My name's Katie. Um, part of what is attractive to me about Zazen is that um, I'm generally sitting for a period of time and I'm just surrendering to whatever either time the schedule has been set up or I set on a timer. Um, and that feels very freeing. Um, and then if I'm practicing yoga, especially if I'm practicing by myself, um, volition seems to enter more into it because I have to make a series of choices about the series of poses that I'm doing and um, sometimes that series of choices feels very intuitive connected to my body and sometimes it feels less so um, but I also wonder even when if it's intuitive if it's because it's habitual in some way and I'm you know doing I often am doing the poses that my body likes to do and is comfortable mm -hmm. doing um, so I wondered if you could talk about about that about um, practicing especially self-directed practice mm. um, and sort of volition and surrender mm. wonderful yeah. Can I start it from a slightly different angle? Um, so the first thing is, I find the hardest people to teach sitting to are yoga practitioners. because, Like modern yoga practitioners and dancers. Because they're like sensation addicts. When they feel sensations, they want to like move with them, and go into them, and change them. And then when you get them to sit still, it's really, really hard to sit still because they're used to wanting to do stuff with sensations all the time. Um, but there are internal yoga practices that are really important to learn around uh, bandhas, which are energetic patterns in the body, diaphragms in the body, uh, ways of breathing, um, 
ways of using the gaze where instead of the practice being so volitional, um, you're focused on an internal dimension that's not as a wheel-oriented. So that's number one. And within that, you're learning meditation technique. It's the same technique you learn in Zazen, I think. The second piece is, I think it's important to keep asana practice and meditative practices as separate silos. So that even though they feed each other, like any two things do or can do, that um, in the movement of yoga practices, even though there's energetic patterns we're meditating on and with, um, you're not going to enter the kind of stillness and see the same kind of patterns that you will in formal meditation practice. And that's why different yoga systems have different number of limbs, like six limbs, eight limbs, five limbs. So they say, you know, one limb is asana practice, three limbs are meditation practice, and the rest are basically conduct. So I think it's really important to see the practice within that context. And to see, yes, there are practices that we do that are more willful, and then there are practices that we do where we're using um, we're using the technique, we're using control, the control of the zazen posture to let go of control. So I think we need both, which is my answer for everything we've said tonight. Um, and at the same time, I think it's really important to learn the practices inside zazen that are yoga practices and the practices inside the yoga tradition that are um, meditative practices. So that if you have like postures like, oh, should I do this today? Should I stretch that today? I feel like I should do this. There's that going on. But inside, there's other things you're paying attention to that are more connected to the zazen. So that's where I'd start. And I would agree with that. And here's what I would add to it is, in watching ourselves, is there something I'm avoiding? You know, is there uh, an, an emphasis on self-reliance? I will, you know, chart out my own map of practice, or you know, the the opposite side. Do I, when I, when I'm not being told what to do, do I just sort of fall apart and give up? You know. And, and to learn from that how to be skillful with our own tendencies. And then another thing I would add is I think it's wonderful to step out of the tradition that you're familiar with and you're intimate with and go off somewhere else. But that's what drew me to the Rinzai practice. It's like, this is not Soto. And they, you know, they chant different, they walk different, they relate to the breath different. So look, it really lifts me out of my comfort zone and my familiarities. And I learn so much about what that produces, and I learn about the tradition that I consider my root tradition. So I would say that too. Mark, um, just first hearing you speak and give an introduction about the various traditions you were familiar with, 
um, my mind kind of immediately went to this question or this maybe topic that I've kind of been wanting to explore in my life. Um, but then it kind of settled down a little bit and like, oh wait, maybe that's not even a question to be asked. But um, can you just speak to like the vehicles and like what you maybe think is appropriate for the West and just, or not the West, but maybe general, but like North America or America specifically in the same way that like Buddhism and all these traditions change as they go from country to country and kind of adapt to the characteristics of that particular place. Um, do you think there's some kind of like endogenous tradition that is beginning to form or like, especially like with um, your, and I think yours as well, um, exposure to both like psychotherapy and these kind of Eastern traditions? Mm -hmm. Thanks, Mark. Great question. And You, you know, when I reference my own experience, my own experience has to be steeped in a Soto Zen tradition where we diligently try to preserve the core teachings and methods and liturgy of our founder, a Japanese Zen teacher. And, and what I've observed over the decades is that it's, it's a little bit like each one of us, you know. We say, oh, this is what I'm doing. And then, you know, that's what we say we're doing. But if we pay more close attention, we'll see that's part of what we're doing. And then there's other things going on for us, too. And I would say the CMO of San Francisco Zen Center. This is what we say we're doing, but there's other things going on, too. We're preserving the heritage of our teacher. But then how come we chant the Metta Sutta? Nobody in Japanese Zen chants the Metta Sutta, but we do. And how come we now have a lineage of women ancestors? They don't have that in Japan. You know? That is, as we've continued, these things have arisen for us, and, and somehow uh, become part of what we do. And, 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 and so it leads me to say, have some vehicle and tradition that you are steeping yourself in to learn from. And stay open to other traditions and other learnings, but, but let your root tradition be your vehicle. Hmm. Um. I have, I have two, two comments. So the, the first is just biographical, which is, for me, the teacher that I've developed a relationship with has always been more important than the lineage. So um, I've just in, I'm kind of a loyal person. So the first teachers I studied with, I'm still in relationship with them. And what's happened is I've just met somebody and just felt not that the relationship's always been great, but I felt something where something about the way they behaved and their presence inspired me. And um, to me, that's what moved me more than I want to study Soto or Rinzai or, you know. Um, and then it just so happened that the teacher, you know, teaches koans or whatever. Um, when I... Um, was uh, being kind of groomed to teach in the Vipassana world. 
um, I was at a retreat center called IMS, and they had a journal they were producing called the Insight Journal, and there was an interview with this Zen teacher from Manhattan um, named Enkyo Roshi, and the first question they asked her in the interview was, in the journal, what's your practice? And her answer was, Manhattan. <laughs> and I, f I felt something, and, and then I went to go find her. Because I thought, this is, uh, this is the person I want to study with. Yeah. And that's her. That's her. That's, that answer is her. Um, so that's the first thing. The other piece, I think, is that the Dharma is an organism that changes in the host country that receives it. And in most countries the Dharma has uh, moved to, they have built monasteries. In our culture, as the Dharma comes into the culture, I feel like it's not going through a transplantation process as much as it's going through a translation process. <coughs> Most of the people teaching meditation in our culture are not wearing robes. They're in hospitals, they're in psychotherapy offices, they're school teachers who are learning a secular practice. And um, so I often ask this question, which is like, does the Dharma have a DNA? Like, like a nucleic acid that is the, the DNA of the Dharma that, that moves through different cultures that's recognizable. And I think it does. And I think it's the, 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 the teaching that when suffering arises, you can open to it. That when you open to suffering, reactivity arises and you can work with it. And that when you transform reactivity, a path emerges. I mean, this is the Four Noble Truths. And, and there's something about that vision that I think is unique to the Dharma, no matter what country it's in. And, and, and I think it's going to be our job, as the Dharma comes into Western soil, to find out what the DNA is of the Dharma that can be brought to light. And, um, and it will be brought to light in a, in a, in a secular language. And, um, and that's going to be really interesting. And we're also going to make lots of mistakes. Um, my question is to really both of you. I studied Vipassana for a while and then now studying Soto Zen here. Can everybody hear? No. Do you want to stand up uh, and just project a little bit? I will just speak bit? very loud. Okay. okay. Um, I guess the question is, well, the initial statement is, I know that the core of both practices are very, ultimately the same. However, the approach of practices can be a little bit contradicting at times. And I'm struggling with that. And ultimately, this is about non-attachment. <laughs> and I think coming from a Vipassana background and, and seeing how all the forms, it, like having a hard time not, well, being and using the forms and noticing myself becoming attached to the forms, so it's sort of a push and pull between the two traditions and I know that they are complementary but I also notice contradictions between the two teachings. Any advice? <laughs> <laughs> what contradictions are you noticing? Um, I think the main 
one was with the forms and all the, you know, bowing, the robes and, and incense and all the, the, the forms that we use here. And in Vipassana, they, as, as far as I'm concerned, there was always, uh, be careful with that, you know, you know, just go straight for the practice, you know, focus on the sitting, forget about all of the forms because they can be a gate to become attached to the forms and you forget about the, the core of the practice itself. Mm. I've noticed that that was something that my teachers sort of really talked about a mm. lot. And I come here and it's, the practice is the forms. <laughs> so just mm. dealing with that is very challenging on a daily yeah. basis. Can you see in a way that we, we can look at the basic request of practice? And both of them have their validity, you know, when, when we think of well, what's, what's the fundamental involvement that practice is asking of us, you know? We, we can see, well, forms can help and forms can be a hindrance. Just saying, oh, no forms, just do whatever occurs to you, can help and can be a hindrance. I've been noticing both a lot. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, and then we think, well, well then, this contradiction, like the, this conflict, how does it come into being? Uh, and, and then, is, is, is that going to become definitive in how I relate to even? Or, or is it going to become a kind of interesting and informative tension between what seems to be two different dispositions. Sometimes difference is actually helpful in having us... Well, what is the core? What is the fundamental teaching that they both are aspiring to express? Um. Hey, I'm, my name is Klaus. Um, I'm going to speak up because I'm very comfortable. <laughs> um, I was curious, Michael, would you say like one thing about Paul that you really admire? And then maybe Paul, you can say something about Michael that you like. <laughs> about Vipassana and <laughs> some technical yeah I mean I, I can say some things to flatter Paul um, the, the first thing I would say is um, um, uh, Paul contacted me I, we, we, we had met in one second once at the San Francisco Zen Center yes. uh, which he remembered which impressed me mm. and, um, and he contacted me after reading one of my books and asked me if I wanted to teach with him and so I was really honored by that because I know this community and, you know, I know who Paul is. And so that really touched me a lot. And, um, and he wasn't interested in planning at all. He just said, show up, we'll teach together. Mm -hmm. And, um, <laughs> more or less. And um, so um, there's a few things that have impressed me a lot and we're only in the second day, but um, Paul has a beginner's mind. He's constantly asking questions. 
at the end of every session, I say, does anybody want to stay and talk? And everybody leaves, pretty much, or there's like two questions, and then Paul stays. <laughs> Asking all these questions, you know, and, and telling me all kinds of stories about his experience. Um, so I, I really admire that. I also um, I admire the spirit he has around practice not being something that you do, but something that exists so that you can receive teaching all the time. I mean, those aren't your words, but that's kind of my experience of Paul, is that like, sometimes you're with experienced practitioners and they're, they're practicing. And I, I don't feel that with Paul. I feel like he's practicing because um, he feels blessed. And um, when I'm in his presence, I, I feel that and, and admire that and look up to that. And, um, and I also hope that um, I have the same kind of joy that he has when I'm a little bit older. <laughs> but can I just add one more piece? <laughs> The last thing that I'll say is that I have a, a radar for teachers who are parents, because mm. most of my teachers are not parents. Mm. And um, I am the parent of three kids, and so I'm always really interested in how someone combines a practice that still values the concentration and the meditation of the zendo with what it's like to actually be in relationship. Well, thank you. Thanks for asking. That. <laughs> <laughs> um, I up the bar, so yeah, then. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the first thing that that impressed me, and I have a deep appreciation for, it was is Michael's um, dedication. You know. He, He's, he's, he's dedicated to the Dharma, and, and, and that dedication has a kind of omnivorous expression, you know? Whether it's this, I'll study this, if this is, this is what's appropriate, I'll study this, I'll study that, and I'll, I'll study and practice this, I'll study and practice this, and I'll study and practice this. That this um, deep willingness to to learn, to, to take in what's helpful, what's instructive, what can um, help illuminate, and, and then to watch him as he starts to talk about some aspect of practice, and watch the delight and the passion and the fervor with which he engages it, you know. That this is this is both a generous act but also a joyous act. You know? Yeah. A little bit like I came across a jewel and I'd like to give it to you. you know? And uh, and that's um, 
marvelous to watch. Yeah. Some part of me thinks the jewel's not anywhere near as important as the spirit mm. of giving, the enthusiasm, mm. the communication that what we're doing vitalizes human existence. No? It's not an imposition. It's something marvelously enlivening. When my self-esteem is low, I'm going to play this part. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> and then the other thing I marvel at is, of all these traditions, the, the extent uh, of his knowledge base. And, and I think, where did you find the time? You know? <laughs> did you start when you were three? <laughs> how, how have you managed to, to not just like dabble, but like go into the depth of something and really explore it and take it in and, and work with it? Um, And not only take in the tradition, but then to listen to him, you know, say, okay, well, this is what I was taught, and this is how my beginner's mind is still working with it. Because I thought, hmm, is that okay? And, um, and then experimenting. And then I taught myself these kind of movements. <laughs> and, but that kind of spirit, you know, it's, it's not simply become a robot and repeat this way of being. That it's, it's explore it with investigation, with curiosity and passion and keep discovering, you know, and then, and then the whole process is a continual opening and unfolding. And, and I would say that's, that's what I wish for us all. I think to the degree to which we can do that with the Dharma in whatever tradition, that's what will help it flourish. And, and, and that's what will make it a great gift in this world. Want to add any closing words? Yeah. Please. May I? Please. Um, could, could I ask the people who are residents here to stand? So that the people who are not can just see you? <laughs> There's so many. <laughs> You're all so beautiful. <laughs> so I guess I just wanted to say one thing, which is... Um, uh, it's, it's, it's been noted many times that all of us who are here just visiting can really feel your practice. Yes. And uh, um, um, it's making a big impression. And also, you're so lucky that you can be here. <laughs> yeah. So thank you so much. Yes, thank you. Thank you.
when I when I was young, and I I started practicing. Like I was the youngest person by so far, and there were I had no peers. So to come here and see residents that are like, you know, the age groups are a little bit, you know, equal in some respects. It, it's like amazing. It's amazing to see because I, I kind of envy it a little bit. Like, I wish I could, you know. No, I don't. <laughs> So thank you all for coming. Um, we are in a Zen center and following the schedule is an important part of Zen forms. <laughs> 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 and on that note, we're going to draw this discussion to a close. Thank you very much. <laughs>